but in the ocean sounds there, right? Man, if we could just keep that going, that would be wonderful. Good morning, North Church. How are you doing? It's Valentine's Day, right? Yeah. So one person's excited over here. Excellent. Good for you, sir. Excellent. Um, and it would be a great day to have an inspiring message about love and romance and marriage and uh, men and women getting along in the way that God intended them to. But there's a problem. And we're in a series that's called Simple Life. And I would just contend that nothing is less simple than that whole arena of romance. In fact, Solomon, uh, who is purported to be the wisest man ever, had this to say as he reflected on it. He said, there are three things which are too wonderful for me, four which I do not understand. There are four things that are just beyond my capacity to wrap my mind around. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the middle of the sea, and the way of a man with a maid. I'm just going to say that if Solomon couldn't, couldn't figure it out and present it to you, I'm not even going to begin to take it on. <laughs> Other than to say this, gentlemen, make sure that you say a, and do a special something for that person that you love. It will make your life a lot simpler. <laughs> and if you fail, things will get complicated very quickly, right? So make sure that you take care of that. What we're talking about today, specifically in this, uh, in this series, Simple Life, we're actually taking the opportunity we have to join with Christians across history and, and uh, Christians in modern day who are celebrating the seasons of Lent. So we join with our Catholic brothers and sisters, and we join with our uh, fellow Christians in a number of the Protestant denominations as well, who recognize that kind of the ramp up from from here up to Easter is a season where we can think very deeply and reflect very carefully about uh, what it means to be followers of Christ as we prepare our way to celebrate the resurrection at Easter time. And one of the ways that we do that is by reflecting on a number of the spiritual disciplines and the kinds of practices that take us deep into the heart of God and deep into his desire to have a relationship with us as well. And so uh, this morning we're going to talk about the particular spiritual discipline of prayer, and, uh, and specifically the discipline of learning to pray prayers of confession as well. And I know, I know that when I talk about prayer, um, there are different kinds of reactions that I get. Some people when we begin to talk about prayer will go, I know, it is the wellspring of my soul's life, I love it. And then there are others of you who feel very much about prayer the way that I do uh, when I hear people talk about running. Have, have any runners? Okay, anyone raise your hand and go, you're a runner? A couple, a couple, kind of, yeah. So you runners talk about like the euphoria you get and the freedom and the runner's high you get out somewhere around mile eight, nine, ten. I'm convinced you're all a bunch of lion sacks. I've never come anything <laughs> close to anything remotely like that. And when I hear people talk about the joy and the thrill and the freedom of running, I go, well, if I felt like that, I'd run too. But it's never, it never has happened and I don't think it ever will. And sometimes we get that sense about prayer, right? We hear people talking about their, how deeply affected and moved and empowered they are by their life of prayer. And for some of us, that just doesn't um, connect with our own experience. And we say, man, if that's what it was like, it would be easy, but it's just not like that for me. If you're a note taker, get ready to take notes and take them quick, whether that's on your phone or on your something written or that way. Because uh, one of the things I think that's helpful to understand is how the spiritual disciplines move. And the way they move is in, a, is in a progression from, at the very beginning, we just have a, we have a desire 
to, to do something or to grow in a particular way. We have a desire to, to pursue God in prayer. And at the end of that journey, there's, there's this delight that we can take in that, right? And, and the joy that we get from it. But what we need to understand is that there's some intervening steps that go along with that as well. So these are Pastor Scott's five Ds of discipline. And it starts with that desire. I want to change some area of my life. I want to participate in this discipline of prayer or what have you that God may put in front of me. It starts with this desire. And that desire is followed up by a second D, which is a decision. It says, not only do I want to do that, but I'm going to do that. I'm going to take a step and do something about that. And the desire and the decision, those are pretty straight ahead. Very few of us fumble the ball at that point. But the third D after, after desire and a decision is the discomfort. I said, I want to, and I'm going to, and then I start doing it, and I'm not very good at it. And it's not yet immediately producing kind of all of what it's supposed to produce, and I feel like I'm failing, and I'm uncomfortable, and I don't like it. That's where most of us stop. That's where I stop with the running, I'll tell you that. Hey, this is not fun. I'm done now. And you wonder why I've never experienced the runner's euphoria. Because I couldn't get past the discomfort stage to the fourth D, which is dedication. There's an act of will which takes us past discomfort of saying, I'm going to keep going anyway. I'm going to dedicate myself to this. I'm going to fight through. And after we've, it's only after that that we come to the point where, hey, this is fun. I can take delight in this. I can enjoy this. And the spiritual disciplines and prayer in particular is the same way. You may want to and you may decide to, but if you're unable to fight past kind of the discomfort of, if it's an awkward moment in prayer and I'm not sure what to say next and, and it doesn't seem like anything's changing, can I just encourage you to continue? to keep pressing on past the discomfort, pursue, some, pursue it with dedication, and there is delight to come. Because what we want, but unfortunately what isn't available to us, are the spiritual disciplines which jump straight from desire to delight. Let me just tell you, if you can jump from desire to delight, that's not discipline. It's dessert. <laughs> it's not a spiritual discipline for me every morning to get up in the morning and have a cup of coffee. Now I do it pretty much every day of my life, but it's not a discipline, I enjoy it. Discipline is, along with the cup of coffee, setting aside some time to think, to pray, to reflect, to be with God, perhaps to be with my family in some way or another, right? That's the discipline it takes. If you love football, and particularly Seattle Seahawks football, you may say, oh, I'm very disciplined about the way I watch the Seahawks. I went, you know, I, w I hit every game all year long. Can I just say that if you jump straight from desire to a delight and enjoying it. It's not discipline. Discipline might look like in an equally valuable way setting aside similar amounts of time for your family, for your loved ones, to share life with them, to find out where they are, to speak into their experience, to share their burdens in prayer and to be with them in a very present kind of way. If you find yourself with regard to prayer in a place where just you don't find the joy in it and, and you don't find it empowering you the way that many perhaps have promised you, I'm going to encourage you. Continue on. Fight your way through. For most people, the early stages of learning to pray are a little bit uncomfortable. They're a little bit awkward. They're a little bit different, or, or difficult. But they do, uh, it does get better with time. And one of the ways that it becomes better with time is this. We learn that prayer is not just a technique or a strategy uh, or a format. But we learn that prayer is just an ongoing, open, very honest dialogue with God. Uh, a coming together of, of sharing some of my heart and my thoughts with the Lord 
and, and a time for hearing what it is that he might say to me. We fall into the trap sometimes that if I could just master the technique of prayer, then I'd get good at it, and then I would find the delight in it. And I, I want to kind of break through that barrier and say, no, it's only as you're having an open, honest, very clear relationship with God and a dialogue with God that the joy comes. I mean, I remember I was taught as a young child that praying, well, part, part of the essential parts of praying involved kneeling, folding your hands in a very particular way, and closing your eyes. I was led to believe uh, or misunderstand that if I didn't close my eyes, it didn't count. <laughs> so can you imagine how freaked out I was when I got around to people who really loved Jesus and we went into a time of prayer, and yeah, I peeked, and you know what? There were people looking around while we were praying. I thought it was the end of the world, the apocalypse. <laughs> and then I realized that Prayer is not about necessarily whether your eyes are open or closed or whether your hands are folded correctly or not or the particular position of your body. Those things can enhance your prayer experience to be sure, but they're not the point. The point is the dialogue, me and God, that, are, that is taking place that way. That's what matters. And here's the thing, that an honest exchange with God, a friendship with God, an honest two-way conversation will always bring us to a particular conclusion at some point. And that conclusion is this. He is holy, and I am not. That he is perfect, and I am imperfect. That he desires righteousness, and I fall way short of that. Listen to what David says here in Psalm 32. It's the psalm we're going to be looking at throughout this morning. And it begins like this. It said, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. See, there's a presumption here, isn't there, that we're sinful. He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't say, okay, so for those of you who are sinful, you're going to have to deal with this uncomfortable reality that you need your sins forgiven. He just cuts straight to it and says, no, we, we all share that problem together. We all share those places where we're weak and, and where we fail. The presumption is that we're sinful. The starting point of David's thinking is that failure and sin and transgression are just a part of, of the everyday human experience, right? The question is not, do I really sin? The question is, what should I do about it when I sin? And, man, we have some amazing answers to that question. What should I do about it when I sin? They include things like ignore it and hope it goes away, <laughs> deny that it was ever sin in the first place, justify it, make excuses, show why, why like from in most cases it's sin, but not this particular case it's not sin, we do all of those things. Let's see what David suggests under those circumstances. Let's see what David experienced when he got to the point of saying, yeah, I'm not really going to get honest about my sin. He says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. See, David understands what happens to the human soul when it keeps silent about its sin and fails to acknowledge it. Bones wasting away, groaning, God's hand heavy upon me, my strength is sapped. Sounds a lot like a flu, doesn't it? <laughs> Sounds a lot. I had a bad burger one year in Sacramento's airport. And about 12 hours later, I felt just like this. Something had gone horribly, horribly wrong, and I felt it to the core of my being. And that's David, recognizing when I keep silent about my sin, when I justify it, when I excuse it, when I deny it, when I pretend it's not there, when that happens, 
there is a sense at the core of myself something has gone horribly, horribly wrong. Sin has this kind of noxious, infectious quality about it. And like an infection that goes untreated, uh, it begins taking over everything around it and defiling everything around it and ultimately, ultimately leading to destruction and to death. That's how sin operates, by corrupting everything that it touches and by destroying everything that it comes in contact with. That's what it does. That's why in the book of Romans, Paul writes, the wages of sin is death. Look, it doesn't require God to make a special act and zap us with his finger and punish us with death for some particular sin. The very nature of sin itself is corrupting and produces death. God doesn't have to interact to make that happen. David himself knew a thing or two about the way sin and guilt weighs on the folks that uh, don't get it dealt with. And he understood the way that sin takes a toll. He, uh, he had his very famous uh, incident of adultery with Bathsheba, right? And then in order to cover up the act of adultery, he went ahead and had, his, uh, had her husband murdered. Eventually, the prophet Nathan came to him and confronted him on that particular point. But up until the point that Nathan intervened, David understood what it felt like to be burdened under the weight of the guilt and the unconfessed sin. He had firsthand experience of that. But here, in Psalm 32, he's not necessarily talking about those big, kind of catastrophic, dramatic kinds of failures like that. For David, he dealt with that in Psalm 51. And if you ever want to read an incredible psalm that deals with a heart that's repentant and seeking God for forgiveness, that's a great place to go in your own Bible reading. But he dealt with that big one there. What David's dealing with maybe even a little more on this one, rather than the big catastrophic sins, are kind of the everyday ones, the ones that we easily brush aside, the ones that we are convinced are no big deal. He's talking about the routine, everyday, not such a big deal sins, the easy to ignore sins, the nobody's going to know and nobody even cares sins, the sins that we think we're getting away with just because our life hasn't come crashing down yet. The, it might not be right, but I don't think it's going to cause that much damage kinds of sins. And David understands that the, the person who has not been forgiven for those transgressions is not blessed. But there is a weight and a soul sickness that rests on all of us as those unconfessed sins accumulate. David says, no, sin corrupts, it infects, it destroys. You can, if you went to a doctor's appointment for a checkup and they said, Hey, you know, we found a few cancer cells, but it's nothing to worry about. They're real small and kind of insignificant. Just pretend they're not there. We'd go, you're nuts. Those things have the capacity to multiply and take over my body and kill me. Let's deal with them, even though they're small and seem insignificant now, right? And we would be grateful that our doctor had helped us find and identify those things early enough to do something about it. Sin works very much the same way. It is too the peril of our souls that we brush aside the small sins as if they don't have the opportunity to multiply and to corrupt. So what does David do? What does he do with kind of this cancer of sin that he's experienced uh, and that, he can't, that his soul just can't stay silent about anymore? He continues on. He says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. 
I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. You see, David recognizes that the only way to get out from under the inevitable destruction that sin produces is to get unavoidably honest about his sin. And the discipline of a prayer life that includes honest confession to the Lord is all about that. An ongoing dialogue in which we get first very honest with ourselves and say, I'm going to take an honest look at who I am and how I live, both on the outside in my actions and on the inside in my attitudes. I'm going to get honest with myself, and then I'm going to get very, very honest with God and deal truthfully about the state of my life and the state of the things I'm doing and thinking. I'm going to get honest with myself and with God about my sins, about my failures, about my trespasses, about my weaknesses. I'm going to be honest about it all. It's kind of intimidating, actually, right? To think about that. Well, the, the New Testament gets, gives it an even further wrinkle than that when it says that we're supposed to, in addition to being honest with ourselves and honest with God, that we should be honest with one another about our sins. James put it this way. Therefore, confess your sins to each other. Well, slow down. Surely we can check the Greek and make that mean something else. Surely he doesn't mean what it seems to say, that we should be in the practice of very honestly sharing with one another the places where we have failed and the places where we've come up short. It's pretty straight ahead. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful. It's effective. You know, this last week, in Rooted, a number of the Rooted groups came to a, a portion in the Rooted journey where in small groups and in a very safe and confidential environment, they shared about the very real things of their lives and the place, places where they're designed to break free from the strongholds that would hold them back from what God has. And it's in that place of sharing with one another and praying for one another that people are released and set free in their life, spiritual life and their relationship with God takes on a whole new dimension. It's because they're walking in obedience to a biblical principle that says, as we're honest with ourselves and with God and with one another, things happen. Meanwhile, back in Psalm 32. I want to get back to the kind of the end of that verse, verse 5, where it says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And what happens there? And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Like a cause and effect relationship between I was honest with you, I confessed my sin, and you forgave me. You, you stopped the infection in its tracks. You healed me and released me from the power of sin and ultimately of death. At the end of the New Testament, the Apostle John put it this way. He said that if we confess our sins, he is faithful, he being God. God is faithful and he is just and he will forgive us our sins and he will purify us from all unrighteousness. If we lead an honest prayer life, honest with ourselves, honest with the Lord, we will come to a point of challenge where we realize there is sin in my life. And if we get really honest, we'll agree with the psalmist David that it's burdening my soul and it's weighing me down. And we'll come to the point where we will either choose to confess that and admit it to the Lord and ask him for the forgiveness that he promises or we'll just push it back off to his side again for another day, for another time while it corrupts our soul.
the band's going to come up in just a minute and just play some music so that we can have a time of reflecting. And as they do, as they're getting ready to do that, I just want to point this out. We have this incredible ability to deceive ourselves and to make justifications for our behavior and to deny that our sin problem even exists. What we need, really, is a second set of eyes looking into our heart to honestly reveal to us what's there so that we can take those things to the Lord and deal with them, right? In uh, Psalm 139, David put it this way. He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. You search me, know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and then lead me in the everlasting way. See, David, I think, appropriately got to the point where he didn't just trust his own self-assessment. He said, I need, I need a third, uh, I need a different, uh, uh, somebody else. I can deceive myself, I can make justifications and excuses, but I want the one who is truth to shine the light of his love into the deep places of my heart and reveal anything there that is sinful for the purposes of bringing it up so I can uh, confess that to God, be forgiven, and move forward with a soul that is set free from the burden of all of that guilt. And I want to give us this morning the opportunity to do just that. And so they're going to play a little background music for just a bit for us. And while they do, I'm going to ask you to invite God in a very honest moment to search your heart to know your mind, to try you and see if there be any wicked way. And if there is, internally, I want you to acknowledge it. I want you to get very honest with yourself and with God and give that sin, give that item, give that habit, give that mindset, whatever it is, whatever the Spirit of God brings to mind, would you give it a name? And then I'm going to come back in just a moment going to yield those things to the Lord. We're going to confess them to Him. And we're going to be set free of the weight and the burden and the corruption that those things hold over us. Let's seek the Lord and invite Him to search out our hearts in these next few moments.
work that God's doing in us, in you, in these moments is very deeply personal. Speaking to the possibly the most private personal places in your life. It's really between you and him. But I will say this, there come these opportunities to make a definitive statement, to plant a flag, to draw a line in the sand, and to say, in a way that's beyond the everyday and the routine, I want to declare that I'm really doing business with God today. Maybe, maybe in part this is related to that passage in James that talks about confessing our sins one to another. I'm not going to ask anyone to share the specifics of what God is putting on their heart, what God's identifying as, we invite, as you've invited them in to take a look. But I do want to invite all who would, if, if today's a day in which you say, I, I want to make a statement. I want to do more than sit passively. I want to take a stand that I am releasing this to God and stepping away from this sin. I want to invite you to do something which does require a little courage in a room this size, and that is simply to stand where you are as an indication that I am taking what God's doing in my heart seriously, and I'm yielding it to Him. I'm in need of His forgiveness, and He and I are doing business in this transaction right now. So if that's you, go ahead and stand God sees our hearts as well as his posture, as well as our postures. He knows what's going on in each one of us. There's nothing magic about standing necessarily. But by putting our faith into action, we dive, we dive in a step deeper that way. We're about to sing a song together in which we bring that specific thing that's on our heart to the Lord and ask God to make our hearts clean, to set us free, to restore to us the joy of the, our salvation, to be released from the shackles of the weight and the burden of sin. And I want to invite you to have that be your prayer. And here's the deal. God knows all our hearts standing or sitting. Um, we're all in need. And so now I'm going to ask that we would all stand as an indication that we are all in need of the forgiveness which God offers. And let this closing song be our powerful prayer to God as we close today.